welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm your host, Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, you hear a conversation about the representation of Iranians in Western media. I joined a panel discussion hosted by the Arab Center, and I was joined by guests Asal Rad and Yahya Kamalipur, and the panel was moderated by Mehran Kamraba. Here's a panel discussion about the representation of Iranians in Western media. Greetings from the Iranian Studies Unit of the Arab Center for Research and Policy Studies. My name is Mehran Kamrava. I'm Professor of Government at Georgetown University in Qatar, and I also direct the Iranian Studies Unit uh, here at the Arab Center for Research and Policy Studies. Today, we'll be looking at representations of Iranians in Western media. And to do so, we're joined by uh, three distinguished experts who specialize on the topic. Let me briefly introduce them. I have uh, an entire page on each of our distinguished guests here, and I'll be very brief in introducing them because if I were to do justice to their full um, uh, biography would be here uh, all day. Uh, we have Professor Yahya Kamalipur, who is a professor of communication and former chair of the Department of Journalism and Mass Communication at North Carolina A&T State University in the United States. Professor Kamalipur previously served as professor and head of communication and creative arts at Purdue University. Northwest. He has published 18 books, 18 books, and some of the most recent ones are Global Media Perceptions of the United States, The Trump Effect, Global Communication, and, and another book called Global Communication, A Multicultural Perspective. This book is now in its third edition, Global Discourse in Fractured Times, and Media, Power, and Politics in the digital age. He's the founding director of Global Media Journals Network and founding president of Global Communication Association. We also have joining us Negar Mortazavi, an Iranian-American journalist and political analyst, uh, a brilliant political analyst, I should add, and host of the indispensable Iran podcast. Nagar is based in Washington, D.C., and she's been covering Iranian affairs and U.S. foreign policy toward the Middle East for over a decade. Nagar has a master, master's degree from Brandeis University and a bachelor's degree from University of Massachusetts. You might have read Nagar's many pieces or have heard her on CNN, NBC, NPR, BBC, France 24, Al Jazeera, and many, many other media outlets. Last, but by no means least, we're joined by Dr. Asal Rob, who's the research director at the National Iranian American Council, where she works on research and writing related to Iran policy issues and US-Iran relations. Dr. Rod's writings can be seen in Newsweek, the National Interest, the Independent Foreign Policy, and many other media outlets. She's appeared as commentator for BBC World, Al Jazeera, NPR, and many other 
outlets. Dr. Rod has a PhD in Middle East history from the University of California, Irvine, uh, and a forthcoming book from Cambridge University Press called The State of Resistance, Politics, Culture, and Identity in Modern Iran. Uh, my sincere thanks to all three of you for joining us uh, for this discussion. And uh, let me just start. I have uh, uh, had the good for fortune of living in a number of different uh, countries. Uh, and uh, uh, being here, based here in Doha, I'm a, a loyal uh, watcher of Al Jazeera. And I see a distinct difference in the coverage, for example, between Al Jazeera, certainly Al Jazeera Arabic, but also English and uh, American media outlets such as CNN or uh, NBC, or for that matter, the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. So if I could ask, um, and um, uh, Yahya, I'll, I'll start with you. Has there been over time a change in the way that Iran and Iranians are covered in the Western media? The answer is yes. Uh, it's a pleasure be, uh, to be with you. Uh, let me briefly state that um, uh, before the 1979 uh, Iranian revolution, uh, the image of Iran or Persia uh, in the United States uh, was um, uh, not negative, as negative as uh, you know, it, it is now. Uh, I came to the U.S. in uh, 1972, that's seven years before the revolution. And I recall that, uh, you know, people uh, did not have really a negative uh, perception and all uh, often thought of Iran as an exotic uh, place. You know, um, were, were familiar with the Persian rugs and Persian cats and all that. And then the 1979 revolution changed everything. Uh, so, and especially the uh, hostage crisis uh, uh, negatively impacted uh, the image, overall image of Iran and uh, impacted all of us individually as well. Uh, I, I can you know, talk about various experiences that I had myself um, the, uh, because in 19, uh, coincidentally in 1979, I started teaching and the hostage crisis took place. So, you know, that's, uh, I don't want to go into details, but the hostage crisis certainly contributed to what we can call the war of images. And then, uh, uh, then uh, what happened was that for 444 days, uh, Iran was uh, uh, you know, on the top of the news nationally and internationally. And of course, um, Hollywood uh, uh, started producing uh, movies about Iran. Uh, there are some 20 different, at least 20 different movies about Iran uh, uh, produced, um, uh, including Peacemaker in 1997, uh, The Hitman in 1991, 
and not without my daughter in 1998, naked gun and uh, under siege and Delta force. There are so many uh, movies that uh, really uh, portrayed uh, Iran uh, uh, negatively. And on the other hand, you know, in recently in 2002, uh, uh, George Bush, uh, uh, refer to Iran or put Iran uh, in the axis of uh, uh, evil states. And in 2016, Donald Trump called Iran the world's number one terrorist state. Uh, so uh, that um, uh, the, the revolution and the hostage crisis you know, continue to have a negative overall negative impact on the image of Iran, unfortunately. Thank you. Uh, Asad, you have one leg in um, academia and another in uh, policy realm. Uh, and uh, Yahya just referred to uh, image of Iran in uh, popular culture uh, with uh, these movies. How does this image in popular culture uh, either relate to or reinforce public policy uh, in relation to Iran? Well, it, you know, I actually uh, authored a report earlier this year that made this exact argument, right? The argument was that the way that Iran has been portrayed and uh, Dr. Kamalipour, uh, you know, spoke to the very important sort of historical watershed moment that happens, which is in part the revolution, but it's actually the the embassy seizure in November of 1979. And I always point this out because, you know, people assume uh, diplomatic uh, relations get severed because of the revolution. But the revolution happens in February of 1979 and diplomatic relations aren't severed until November when the this embassy is seized by Iranian students. And of course, there's the hi historical context um, as to the, the view of uh, Iranians themselves, especially the Iranian students who who seized the embassy at the time. But when you look at after after that period, the the media portrayals, whether it's the political discourse of politicians, whether it's popular culture, or whether it's the news media, right? These different sort of prongs of communication with the American public and how the image of Iran is constructed within the American public um, directly impacts. The policies that we see as well. And the reason I say that is because there are times in which the U.S. officials in the United States government uh, enacts policies that go against the will of the American people, that undermine U.S. national security interests, that undermine global security interests. And we have to be able to explain why, for instance, that happens, why, you know, an administration like the Trump administration comes in in 2017 and then in 2018 decides to tear up basically uh, a nuclear agreement um, that was the crowning achievement of his predecessor um, that was almost almost universally accepted as a unprecedented non-proliferation agreement that benefits everyone. Why does that happen? It doesn't benefit the United States to withdraw from it. It doesn't benefit global security to withdraw from it. So it happens because there are these ideological um, influences where Iran is seen as this sort of caricature of an enemy. And no matter what Iran does, it's always, and it does good things and it does bad things, like, like many states. And it does many, many bad things, just to be very clear. But 
in terms of a policy that's specified on something like nuclear proliferation and non-proliferation in this case, uh, those have major global interests, of global security interests. So why do we undermine those things? Well, because there is an ideological bent where it's very easy in this, in this climate to have like an anti-Iran sort of attitude. And I'll just give you one example. Um, just a, a couple of months ago, you had the Senate Republicans, a handful of Senate Republicans have a press briefing uh, where they're basically talking against the JCPOA, why they're against the nuclear deal, why they're against negotiations. And Senator Reich, in his comments, um, said something, I'm paraphrasing, but said something to the effect of, you know, he doesn't know the Persian language, uh, but if he did, he would likely not find the words good faith anywhere in the language. And that kind of uh, sort of blanket statement that makes it sound like uh, and and these these types of statements have been repeated over and over again by U.S. officials. The idea that deception is in the DNA of Iranians, right? Um, the fact that a senator in the U.S. would make such a blatantly bigoted remark um, that not only affects Iranians, by the way, but all Persian-speaking people, which are not only in Iran, um, that tells you, and, and the fact that there's barely any backlash outside of our own community, that tells you the sort of atmosphere we're in, where it's okay to make these sort of bigoted remarks um, and to use them, right? And to use the, these blanket statements as reasoning behind why a policy should not be enacted. So you see that direct interaction of, of the way this image is constructed, how that image is then used by politicians themselves and how it is used to justify certain policy positions. So I would say that, that these two things are very much um, impactful on each other. And it's sort of a, a positive feedback loop or a negative feedback loop, I should say, where, you know, you have this image, you have these policies, and then you continue to have that cycle occur. Yeah. I, you know, as you were saying that, I'm reminded of, uh, uh, I believe it was Wendy Sherman, who said uh, it is in the Iranian DNA to lie or in the DNA of Iranian policymakers to lie. And uh, I, I was just flabbergasted when I heard that. Uh, and then it was uh, the Trump administration that pulled out of the JCPOA. And, uh, yeah. and actually, that's the interesting thing. And I'm glad you brought that up because it's bipartisan, right? This isn't like one party that's because there's often uh, the distinction between Republicans and Democrats in, in, in the United States often is about their sort of identity politics. The way that Republicans talk about different groups and the way that Democrats do is, is quite distinct. Yet, when it comes to Iranians specifically, they overlap. So you have uh, members of different administrations, whether Republican or Democrat. Um, I believe Hillary Clinton also made similar comments, you know, even though she was a proponent. That was the interesting thing. Even proponents of the deal, even people who supported the deal, still had to sort of take these jabs at, at um, the Iranian people, really. You know, it, the idea is to, to separate between the government and the people. But t comments that talk about uh, that talk about Iranians at large or or their language or their culture clearly are not directed towards a government. They're directed towards anybody um, part of that group. And that's uh, how many in the community, in the diaspora, feel as well when they hear those types of comments. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Negar, uh, Asad just uh, referred to um, the Iranians doing a lot of uh, bad things. Uh, I often uh, think that the Iranian government is its own worst enemy. How does what this uh, uh, being uh, tone deaf, 
uh, and uh, how does this impact the, the statements and the actions uh, coming out of Tehran? How do they in, play into this uh, image of Iran, uh, uh, and uh, which is uh, portrayed? Um, thank you so much. Thanks, Mehran, for the kind introduction and for having me to the Arab Center. Also, thank you for organizing. Um, yes, I very much agree. want to echo what um, Asal and Yahya were saying, and also uh, your comments, Mehran. Um, let me also add, um, Asal talked about it being bipartisan. Lindsey Graham, the Republican senator, has had a few instances of essentially dehumanizing all Iranians. He said um, if they found out that there was Persian or Iranian in his DNA, that would be awful. Um, there was also another Republican senator recently in the context of the nuclear deal that suddenly came out and made a very dehumanizing um, comment about Iranians, essentially the Persian language, and which was also false. It was false, but you know he got away with it and there wasn't much coverage. So um, I, I want to take a step back, Mehran, with your question in mind and talk about how uh, the media coverage is, in my view, to some extent biased and skewed and why that happens. And part of that goes to your comment and your question that it's exactly the Iranian government statements coming from Iranian officials, sometimes senior, sometimes you know, an obscure minor official in some remote town will say something stupid, uh, which, you know, stupid things are said uh, by by all kinds of officials around the world, but then they become headlines and they get picked up and, and become this constant coverage over and over again. The way that, for example, the uh, comments by the American side about Iranians doesn't get that kind of um, uh, cycle of coverage um, it's also a when it comes to the media, which is the world that I very much closely observe and watch as a journalist and also uh, as a guest analyst, I speak to a lot of journalists about Iran. I appear on multiple different international and Western channels to talk about Iran. And I'm, you know, in, in daily touch with the coverage of the country. It's also a lack of access when it comes to the media and the journalism. And that also goes back um, to the Iranian government's policies as far as them being their own worst enemies, as you're saying. Um, you know, many Western outlets, American specific, but also other, at least Western European outlets or international outlets don't have good access to Iran. They don't necessarily have bureaus in the country. They don't have reporters on the ground. Sometimes American reporters are granted permission to travel to the country temporarily. Usually I speak to a lot of American journalists. Um, I give, you know, they, they talk to me for advice, what to do to meet. And um, they go to the country for a week or two at most. I've never seen anybody spend on a visa more than a month in the country. So it's this lack of access and the sort of black box situation that the Iranian state has created, which makes it very hard to penetrate from the outside. It's also, I think, a lack of resources or um, you know, enough incentives by, by Western outlets to invest in their coverage of Iran when it has to be done from a distance or with limited access. Um, many journalists who 
either cover the beat or occasionally do cover Iran, don't speak English, they're not of Iranian background, they've never been to the country, or sometimes they fly in. Um, there are a number of, a few number of uh, journalists with Iranian background or who speak Persian, and they're doing excellent work in, in major outlets, but not every outlet has that kind of access to people who understand the country, understand the culture, understand the language, or have some sort of an educational background. You know, you need something to understand the country to be able to cover it. And I think it's uh, for a country in the region that has so much focus and so much attention, uh, the amount of resources that media outlets have as far as you know their staff and reporters understanding the country when they're covering it um, is a lot less than, than the other countries in the region. It's also, there's, there's another issue I think uh, I want to highlight is that um, the nuclear program, which is, again, part of the politics between Iran and the West, and specifically or mainly the U.S., has dominated a lot of the media coverage of Iran. It's essentially, it's, uh, you, you think the country is just a nuclear program because the nuclear program is talked about so much uh, over and over. And for a country that has a civilian program, and this is not my saying, this is the head of the CIA just recently reaffirming that Iran's program is still civilian, so much talk of a civilian program potentially one day becoming close to the margins of having fuel that could potentially be used for a bomb. It's just the politics of the countries that are essentially Iran's foes or rivals has impacted this media coverage very much. And when, when you hear as an audience, um, a, the, a global audience or a Western audience, when you just keep hearing about a country's nuclear program or a country's politics, that in, a, in itself has a dehumanizing effect. I'm not saying every journalist or every editor is dehumanizing Iranians purposely, but when it's limited to that, um, to one or two topics, security very much, and politics and foreign policy, then um, you, you don't have a very clear image of a country which, where 80 million people are also living. It's very diverse, you know, with of different ethnicities, backgrounds, religious. Many of them are opposed to the government's policies. Even within the government, there's um, different echelons of power. There's competition. So I think... Um, What's happening is that, yes, uh, and sometimes I talk to my non-Iranian colleagues and uh, they get a little bit offended because there's this image, at least in the U.S. media, that American outlets are free and they're independent and they're not dictated, for example, as in an authoritarian uh, setting. The, their coverage is not dictated by the country's politics. And it's not like the government tells them how to cover it. But I think when it comes at least to foreign policy and especially to the... Uh, policy and the coverage of uh, countries that are considered U.S. foes, um, the coverage is very much impacted by the politics. And, and an instance or an interesting contrast to this is, for example, when you look at European outlets covering U.S.-Iran tensions, I think they do a better job, more fair, more objective, because it's not their own countries they're talking about. Whenever they're talking about U.S. and Iran or Iran and it's regional foes. I think um, certain European outlets or journalists uh, do a more balanced job of the coverage. And also the difference is that Europeans, because European countries have diplomatic relations with Iran, they have diplomatic presence on the ground. Their journalists travel 
to the country much easier. They get visas, some are present on the ground, still, still difficult, um, not completely free access, but it, they just tend to have a better understanding and better access of the country, which impacts their coverage. Well, I just wanted to, because in, in terms of the coverage specifically on the nuclear program that, that Negar was referring to, to understand the real life impact of that, I wanted to give an example. So Brookings Institute last year did a, did a survey of public opinion, American public opinion. Um, and in the survey, they found that more Americans falsely believe that Iran possesses nuclear weapons then believe that Israel, which has an arsenal of nuclear weapons, possesses nuclear weapons. So the fact that that is what the American public thinks, I mean, there's often there's sort of this uh, cliche about Americans being ignorant towards politics or even geography or what's going world affairs. And that's not that's not a, an insult to the American public. That's an insult to the institutions that are meant to inform them. Right. They're not people are not just inherently given in for given information within their DNA, they have to receive that information through institutions. Two of the pillars of those institutions are education and news media, right? That's where they get their information from. So that coverage is not without consequence. The consequence of that coverage is this is why the American perception is what it is, a totally skewed view of reality. And in a democratic country, which is what the U.S. is meant to be, in a democracy, in order for um, citizens of that country to be able to make informed decisions to affect policy, which is what it's supposed to be, right? We're supposed to have representatives that carry out the will of the American people. They have to be informed themselves. The way that they believe policies are being enacted is skewed by the fact that they don't have the right information to begin with. So it's not, it's not just that, oh, we're talking about, well, this stuff is being covered this way. We are seeing the impact of what happens when they are covered in this manner. Yeah, thank you. I want Can to come I make back. A quick note, Mary. Yeah, absolutely. Just, go ahead. Go ahead. One yeah. final follow up. I'll, I promise I'll stop talking about the nuclear program. But again, going back to my previous points and uh, piggybacking on what Asa said, when there are comments, for example, by US officials, and I cover this nuclear issue, US Iran, very closely, I have covered it in Vienna and in the past almost a decade. Um, when there uh, comments by U.S. officials as far as Iran getting to a dangerous point when it comes to its nuclear program, I don't know, on the threshold of the fissile material, that gets blanket coverage, at least here in the U.S. But for example, when the CIA had, not just recently, not long ago, um, uh, William Burns, Bill Burns, um, said at, I believe, uh, a think tank here in D.C., he said at a, uh, at a, a, a public uh, setting that the CIA concludes, U.S. intelligence concludes that Iran's uh, nuclear program is still civilian. There was very, very little coverage of that, of basically U.S. intelligence, a U.S. official, top official assuring that Iran's nuclear program in a way is not dangerous from their view. So it's also one other point as far as how politics um, impacts the coverage. Yeah, thank you. I want to come back to this, but uh, yeah, you, know, you mentioned uh, war of images, and we've been hearing a lot uh, on uh, uh, how the U.S. media covers uh, Iran. Uh, there are a number of media outlets uh, that are based in Iran. There's Al Hor. There's Press TV. Is Iran, 
at all successful in its public diplomacy? Is it able to portray a different message, either through these or through social media, Twitter, um, Clubhouse, other means? Uh, well, the communication channels are available in addition to press TV and uh, other uh, channels uh, inside Iran. They have social media, but the issue is messaging. And that, uh, you know, one of my favorite uh, comments when it comes to image and perception is a statement by Walter Lippmann, uh, you know, who said that we act and react toward each other based on images in our heads. That's an important statement. And where do those images come from? Of course, what happens in Iran, what the official do there, what the, uh, the media, the national media or international media based in uh, Iran report uh, is, is important. And let me also mention that in California and elsewhere, there are some 30 plus uh, television uh, channels, there are radio uh, programs, there are podcasts, but unfortunately they are, um, you know, sort of disjointed, I mean, disconnected, that they, they do not uh, send similar or the same messages. Uh, I think they have a more negative impact on the ever overall image uh, of Iran. Um, and that's, that's unfortunate because these uh, media could have a positive impact. And of course, uh, you know, reporters and researchers like Negar and Assal are extremely powerful in what they do. And, um, but the thing is that we have to join hands and the, a program like this uh, should be done more often and look at this important issue from a different perspective. Um, so the, again, I agree with Assal and Negar that we are all impacted somehow, some, uh, you know, regardless of where we are um, uh, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, the uh, image uh, of Iran or Iranians uh, portrayed in the U.S. media. And as you know, Mehran, uh, the U.S. media are owned by uh, uh, corporations, you know, uh, big conglomerates. And uh, of course, they are all, uh, um, you know, follow their, uh, their leads uh, from their uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, parent companies and uh, tend to, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, portray a similar, uh, similar messages and images. Thank you. You mentioned uh, that Iranian media, particularly the media that is based in uh, uh, Los Angeles or in Southern California, is disjointed. Uh, uh, does this um, media itself play into a certain stereotype or a certain image? Or uh, are any of you uh, panelists? I would appreciate any comment on that. Well, if, if I may... You know, before I forget, you know, one of the positive uh, documentaries or programs that uh, uh, I have seen 
was uh, uh, done by uh, Anthony Bourdain. You know, he went to Iran, and uh, I'm sure you have seen it. I mean, that was, a, a, I think, an excellent uh, representation and, and, and uh, somewhat unbiased uh, representation of Iran. So the, do the Iranian media in the U.S., in Los Angeles, uh, help or hurt the image, overall image? I think among ourselves, we can see that they, what they do, they amplify the division between in the Iranians in the US. And of course, the message that they send uh, to Iran is also, I think, not uh, as productive as it should be. It's just divisive. And uh, again, I, uh, uh, you know, I, I uh, studied and uh, watched the various programs a number of years ago and wrote a report about that. But that trend continues, unfortunately. Thank you. Negar? Um, I just want to add a comment that I'm not speaking about any specific media outlet, and it really depends on which show, which journalist, which kind of coverage. I don't want to generalize, but I agree with Yaya. This phenomenon happens both by diaspora media and also, you know, certain uh, Iranians in the diaspora who may or may not necessarily be working in media and cultural products is that I think the trend is that when they criticize the government and you should criticize your government's um, bad behavior or policies, bad policies, Americans, uh, American outlets criticize their own government's bad policies. And that's essentially what the media is for. But I think it conflates um, the government with the people or with the whole country, or it's referred to as Iran, which when you talk about Iran, it doesn't necessarily mean only the state, it means the country and the population or Iranians instead of Iranian government or Iranian government officials. Um, and it, it plays into this big cycle of dehumanizing 80 millions of people or a large population um, you know, with the aim of criticizing the policies of the government, but essentially uh, generalizing that to the entire population. And the, the problem is that the counter narrative is either very weak or it's non-existent because when it comes to the US, for example, we're talking about just one example, this is a country that has a very, very strong and present counter narrative across the world. You know, there's Hollywood, there's all kinds of American cultural products, media organizations. So when American policies, and there are a lot of bad American policies, when American po bad policies are challenged, there's also a counter narrative or a complementary narrative and a lot of products that the globe, people around the globe can consume to get a fuller picture of what this country is or what the American people are. But um, in the case of Iran, and I'm sure other similar countries are, some are like that, it, that complementary narrative doesn't exist, or it's very, very minimal. Uh, thank you. Uh, there's a number of questions that have come uh, to, uh, to me from um, our audiences. But before I get to those questions, I wanted to zero in particularly 
on the coverage of Iranian women, women in Iran, and the way they're covered in the Western media. Is there, uh, 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 if you go to Iran, if you know any Iranian women, uh, two of the most successful examples of whom are right here, you know um, that there's a dissonance, huge dissonance between the way that uh, they're generally portrayed in the Western media or in news outlets uh, as compared to the reality on the ground. The, um, uh, would any of you care to comment on that? Uh, I think one of the things, one of the sort of narratives uh, that exists within Western media, and this isn't, this is not exclusive to Iranians. This is basically about like Muslim women. So, right. So like Muslim women, uh, women in the Middle East, this, these sort of like broader concepts that women need to be, that these women need to be saved. Um, and there's a sort of like savior complex from the Western states. A lot of it, which is, you know, deeply embedded within colonial language, right? Colonialism was language that never went into colonize a state and say, we're here to steal all of your goods and your labor. You know, we're here to, uh, if you're the British, um, if you're the U.S., if you're uh, any of these European states who, who part, you know, partook in this process, it was always to civilize, right? It was always to help. This is, this is what everybody was there for, according to um, those colonial sources themselves. So that type of language, you know, that you have this outside power who sees itself as superior culturally, civilizationally, in any way that you can think, to um, the group that it's trying to civilize, um, you see that the roots of that within this current sort of discourse that makes it seem like um, these women need to be saved. Now, much like, unfortunately, throughout the entire world, there is, you know, we live in a system of patriarchy. Women um, are at a disadvantage uh, because of that system and have there have been feminist movements uh, and women's rights movements throughout the world uh, in order to sort of rectify those differences. In the case of Iran, I think what you're talking about is, is this idea that it, it paints them almost as weak characters uh, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, the, the, the fact that, you know, like in Iran, uh, and this is in post-revolutionary contemporary Iran, uh, there are more female students at university than there are male students, something that if you were to say to a sort of the broad Western public, they would probably not be aware of, you know, right? Based on these assumptions that um, women have no access to these things. Now, they lack equal rights, certainly, but they are extremely successful in, in multiple industries. You know, I just think about, you know, the, the film industry in Iran versus like the film industry in the US. There are behind and in front of the camera women everywhere in the film industry in Iran. Um, and that's just one example. There are of course other industries in which they there are more limits in how they can navigate those spaces. But this is a group of women who um, not just recently, but through multiple generations uh, over the, the last century and before have always been part of the political of Iran's political story, right? If there were revolutionaries in the streets, women were amongst them. If there are protesters in the streets today, women are amongst them. Um, so this is a population that is not passive, um, is not sort of sitting back and hoping that they're, they're just saved, but are taking an active participatory participatory role in the you know in the sort of uh, political changes in their own country. And so I think sometimes that uh, that coverage is lacking. And then the one thing I'll add, and before giving the floor to our other speakers, of course, um, is there's also a tendency 
to use to sort of like appropriate feminist discourse by Western Western media and Western coverage um, and ignore certain parts of that society. Uh, and I think that's extremely problematic, right? We, we raise the voices that echo the sort of political ideas that we have, but we silence the voices that don't do that. Um, and the reason why that's problematic is it, it lacks nuanced understanding of the population that we're dealing with. And I'll give a very quick parallel example. If I was talking about, if somebody was trying to look at the United States, analyze it and understand it, understand the political milieu of the United States, and you sort of just ignored um, the supporters of someone like Donald Trump, you ignored um, the more right-wing or Tea Party base that exists in the United States, you would not have a clear picture of what is happening across the board. You would have an understanding of parts of the country, but you wouldn't have an a full picture of, of the reality on the ground. And so I think that's another thing um, that we see in the coverage is that it's a very selective coverage and, and it's based on whether or not it parrots the sort of political points of the person trying to make whatever point they're trying to make. Thank you. Nega? Um, and I want to point to a very good example. This is from a few years ago, I believe, uh, maybe eight years ago. Reza Aslan, another California-based um, Iranian-American academic, uh, had an interview on CNN where he was essentially challenging the Islamophobic comments that were previously made by Bill Maher, actually. Bill Maher also is one uh, top figure who does vilify Islam and Muslims on his show a lot. And then uh, Reza Aslan also gets into a similar argument with the host doing that live interview on CNN. This is on CNN. He was doing the interview with Don Lemon and Alyssa Camarado, if I'm not wrong. And essentially, but, um, I want to read this quote. He's saying, we're talking about, we're not talking about women in the Muslim world. We're talking about two or three examples. This is what Reza Aslan says to justify a generalization, and that is the definition of bigotry. And I want to connect this to our conversation of the coverage of Iran is that a lot of times we also see that this, this vilifying or the dehumanization of Muslims, which is, as Asal very well said, an extension of this post-colonial discourse, um, plays out in different ways when it comes to the uh, US, in the case of the US, US foes or US allies. So yes, there are Muslim countries where you are, for example, Mehran in your area, there are Muslim countries that are not all US rivals or US partners or US allies. And the discourse when it comes to those countries is very different than when it comes to populations that are US um, rivals. And then another example is uh, Donald Trump's travel ban. So when candidate Trump was on the campaign trail, at some point, essentially, he came out and he said he's going to have a complete and total shutdown of all Muslims coming to the United States until we find out, quote, what the hell is going on. And then when he came into the White House, he realized that something as bigoted as that is uh, impossible in today's uh, world in the U.S. to implement. And then it trickles down to a few Muslim countries uh, mainly U.S. rivals and Iran being the top uh, country or essentially the main population being impacted by the travel ban. So it was a Muslim ban, but then it, it came down to countries, Iran, Syria, and a few others um, that goes back to our discussion of how politics uh, influences the image and also essentially the perception and the image leads to, again, policy. So it's a cycle that perpetuates itself. Thank you. Uh, 
uh, one of my colleagues here, uh, Dr. Aisha Al-Basri uh, at the uh, Arab Center for Research and Policy Studies, uh, she asks a question uh, from the other way. And uh, I wonder, uh, Yahya, if you could uh, talk about it or any of the other panelists. Uh, can you comment on Iranian media's coverage of America and Americans? Does it offer a mirrored image of skewed or biased coverage, or is it fair and balanced? Or as much as fair and balanced as possible? Yeah. That, that is an excellent question. Um, you know, I, um, have, I do not watch Iranian media, um, but based on what I have seen um, uh, during my earlier uh, trips to Iran, uh, no, the, uh, uh, the uh, coverage is not balanced. Uh, in fact, it's very similar. So they focus on the negatives, and here in the U.S., they focus on the negative as well. Uh, so it is uh, <laughs> a two-way street. And, um, and uh, far from being balanced, uh, and that—that's uh, my uh, 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 understanding based on what I know. Yeah, thank you. Uh, go ahead, Nigar. Um, I agree with Yahya. I also try to follow Iranian uh, media. It's not a monolith. There's state media, the IRIB, the television and radio, which is completely owned by the state. Um, but there's also newspapers that are more independent, privately owned, and more diverse. Some are even critical of the government and challenge the state's policies. But overall, no, it's, um, as Yahya said, it's not fair, it's not balanced. And it's sort of a mirror image of the U.S. side's coverage of Iran. Iranian journalists also don't have access to the U.S. They don't get visas very easily to travel here. Iranian outlets don't have boroughs here in the United States. Very few, I think one or two in New York, only within the realms of the UN and their visas are very limited. They can't travel out of New York out of a 20-file radius. And it's only because uh, they're covering the United Nations. So as far as covering the US, they have to do it mostly from a distance. Yes, most of them speak English more than American journalists speak Farsi. Iranian journalists do understand and speak English and they do consume American cultural products. Again, as I said before, there's so much material out there that you can learn about this country. So in a way, it's, it's the understanding is deeper, but also the politics of the country very much influences and impacts the coverage. So each side essentially is airing their own grievances against the other and repeating it over and over in the media without having a balanced view of what the other uh, is viewing of them. Um, thank you. Uh, we've talked a lot about the dehumanization of Iranians and the distorted image of Iran. There's a question that has come asking the impact and the influence of the Israeli lobby. In, in this distortion of the image and the dehumanization of Iranians. Uh, would I, any of you care to comment or answer that question? Does the Israeli lobby play a role in this? I can comment. Um, I wanted to talk about the impact of interest groups and it's not just the pro-Israel lobby, it's also you know Iran's other rivals in the region, some Arab states, powerful Arab states that have, um, you know, spent a lot of money in this town where I am in Washington, D.C. on lobbying, on image building. 
It's also another layer to this, which is when countries have a diplomatic presence, for example, here in the US, not that they can control the media narrative, but if there are cases of dehumanizing or false information being put out about a country or its population, you see that the diplomatic centers, be it the embassies or um, you know, the cultural sides uh, of the diplomatic presence uh, will, will try to you know, get in touch either behind the scenes or publicly and try to correct course. In the case of Iran, there's no diplomatic presence. There's no cultural um, funding being spent in the US and, you know, more limited in other countries. So that connection with the media and the coverage is, is limited. But then on the other hand, the opposite side is pouring a lot of money into not only building the image, the desired image for their own countries, but also in uh, controlling the nar narrative of their rivals. So we know, for example, the Saudi government spends a lot of money in Washington, the Emiratis spend a lot of money in Washington, and these are powerful rivals of Iran, and they do, they have been reported instances of how they control the narrative or influence the narrative when it comes to think tanks, to analysis, to reports, to research, and then also to media coverage, experts who appear in, in various media outlets. So yes, it definitely has um, a very strong impact. If I can add, I just wanted to say, you know, uh, and I brought up the earlier example about the public perception of um, the possession of nuclear weapons. So the flip side of the sort of anti-Iran narrative is, which is, which has an ideological bent, um, is a pro-Israel narrative that also has an ideological bent. And the reason I say that is because, again, um, where there are policies that we uh, enact that say, undermine national and global security interests because there's this ideological, um, almost fanatic view that is anti-Iran, we have the opposite with, with Israel. And so the example of that is essentially no matter what Israel does, um, whether it violates, you know, the very, the very sort of discourse and rhetoric that the U.S. uses to, to sanction not only Iran, but many, many countries, um, such as human rights abuses, uh, undemocratic processes, things like that within those countries, um, or, you know, invasions of other countries, occupying other states, all of these types of um, bad behavior that the U.S. often cites that go against human rights and international law and the international rules-based order, Israel commits these things all the time, right? It's uh, the leading human rights organizations of the world have concluded that Israel's actions constitute apartheid, um, crimes against humanity. Um, when there is any attempt by international bodies to investigate uh, even war crimes committed by Israel, they're rebuffed by the state itself and the U.S. essentially supports this. So the fact that we have that the U.S. Uh, has earmarked $3.8 billion of aid, um, of military aid to Israel every year, and that it is by its own definition unconditional, right? What does that mean to say that something is unconditional? It is, it is quite literally what it's saying. It, it doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter if they violate human rights. It doesn't matter if they violate international law. That aid will still be given because there's no condition for it. And so within this sort of uh, political discourse that you see in the U.S., while we often paint our adversaries as these sort of fanatic states, they're ideological, they're this and that, we ignore that sort of um, ideological bent within the country itself and the policies that, that we enact both domestically and foreign, by the way. There's, there's tons of examples of domestic U.S. policy that is also driven by um, uh, religious fervor, by uh, any other types of sort of uh, ideological reasoning rather than the, the merits of the policies themselves. 
Uh, Yahya, what does this portrayal of Iranians uh, tell us about production of knowledge and uh, education? As an educator, as a professor for uh, many decades now in the United States, how do you, does, does the way that Iran is portrayed influence the way you're able to connect to and get through to your students and, and uh, uh, explain and educate your students? Now, when it comes to education, of course, all of us play an important role. Um, as teachers, as you know, reporters, as writers, and uh, students have very little knowledge about Iran. Uh, that's uh, uh, it doesn't matter where at what university, and there are no courses about you know taught about Iran. Of course, there are a few centers on Persian studies or Iranian studies in various universities, but generally speaking at uh, most universities, um, there are no courses, no centers uh, focusing on Iranian studies. And that's, uh, I think that should be uh, something that uh, uh, we should pay attention to. And of course, each of us can contribute to uh, correcting the misperceptions um, as uh, in our classes, but that's all we can do, or, or writing. Uh, but again, that's very limited when it comes to the, uh, the global scope. Well, we're hoping to do that here uh, in, uh, in the Iranian Studies Unit uh, in our own small way. Negar? Um, I just want to add a positive note that I think the situation has gotten much better. I mean, I'm sure you and Yahya have been doing this and observing it for much longer, but um, I moved to the U.S. in 2002, right in between the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. And I remember not only Iran, but again, the axis of evil and sort of the dehumanization of Middle Easterners, Arabs. And then by extension, Iranians, uh, Muslims and Iranians. I think we have come a long way. There are a lot more academics of Iranian background, journalists of Iranian background. There are institutions like where Asal works um, and more and more organizations like the one you are heading, Mehran. And uh, I think more knowledge is being produced. People are pushing back more now when there's a a racist comment about Iranians or the dehumanizing comment. You hear a loud voice from the community. You hear powerful voices in the community joining in and pushing back. So I think we've come a long way and it's it's moving in a good direction, but it's still, we also have a long way uh, to reach the ideal um, that, that all of us, um, I think, are assuming. Uh, Negar, I couldn't think of a better way to bring our discussion to a close. In fact, I wanted to and on a note of looking into the future. And I'm really grateful that you brought that up. Uh, our time is almost up, but Asal and Yahya, is there anything you wanted to add in terms of steps that we, uh, we or uh, either we could take or steps that could be taken to uh, help remedy uh, some of this coverage? Educating and informing. And that is uh, what your center is doing. And that is what we are doing as individuals, uh, you know, in the U.S. and elsewhere. Uh, that's the key. 
and then uh, of course uh, and uh, you know at the more global level i think that's a tall order uh, but if the 30 plus uh, uh, television persian iranian uh, abroad television stations radio stations could somehow uh, coordinate and uh, portray iran in a more positive light at least to ourselves right and reduce the tension and the division i think that's an important step and i think i i agree with uh, it was asal that the situation is getting better and that of course uh, something that is something that we have there's a, the momentum is there we have to take advantage of the momentum and move on and do whatever we can uh, in our capacities to uh, inform and educate uh, thank you very much asa i mean i would agree uh, with negar and uh, yahya um, and basically say you know and this is my way of thanking you for having this platform and, and for giving us the opportunity to have these conversations. I think these discussions are very important. And I think it's beyond just, you know, us having this conversation. It's having these conversations in different places. Um, sometimes these conversations are uncomfortable because there's a lot of pushback to things that you say, because we've become so accustomed to certain narratives that when you try to push back against them, when you try to say, well, let's just take a step back and think about this rationally, rather than with all of this baggage that we're bringing into it, um, it, it can cause tension for people. It could cause some sort of discomfort. And, and that's not just in this conversation. That's in many conversations that make people uncomfortable because it's asking you to question sort of the status quo. It's asking you to question the way that things are and what, what we've become accustomed to. But in order to grow as, as a community, as a society at large, um, those are the very conversations that we have to have that push us to think more deeply about the status quo. Thank you. Uh, we could spend another couple of hours uh, uh, discussing this, but unfortunately our time uh, has come to an end. And I want to apologize to uh, those audience members whose questions we couldn't get to. There's uh, a number of the questions that uh, we just didn't have time to. But let me take this opportunity uh, to thank our panelists. It's been an absolutely wonderful and insightful conversations. My sincere thanks to Yahya Kamalipur, uh, Asal Rad, and Nagar Murtazavi. And also my thanks to all of our uh, audience members and uh, our people who've tuned in or are watching us on social media uh, in Iran, in the United States, uh, here in Qatar, and around the world. Uh, my sincere thanks, and uh, we'll see you soon again. Thank you very much, panelists. Thank you. Really Thank you. It. Thank you. Thanks for your invitation. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank you. That was a panel discussion hosted by the Arab Center with Asal Rod, Yahya Kamalipur, and moderated by Mehran Kamrava. Thank you for tuning into the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and leave a review and a rating. You can also follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast, and you can support our work by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran Podcast. The Iran Podcast is produced by Joshua Barlow in Washington, D.C. Our theme music is by 127 Band, and our logo art is by Mina Jafari. Until next time, goodbye.
Thank you.